0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Sharmie Suriana Ryan, and I serve as the Chief Impact Officer of Harambe Youth Employment Accelerator in South Africa and Rwanda, although I'm calling you and speaking to you today from Nairobi, Kenya. I'll be your chair for this event today, hosted by the RSA, and I'm really delighted to, to be joined by some luminaries in the space, uh, thinking and doing work in the future of work. Letitia Vito and Hilary Cottom. I'm delighted to have you join us. Welcome, Letitia and Hilary.
0: Hello, Shami. Hello, Hilary.
1: Hi, it's so nice to be with you both. Terrific. Well, let me quickly introduce you to um, our viewers um, who may not know of you, but definitely have been impacted by the work that you do. Letitia is a writer and a speaker and a thinker on the future of work and consumption. She's the author of multiple publications and since January 2019 has been the editor-in-chief of Welcome to the Jungle, a leading media that helps companies develop employer branding for the new work generation. Thank you, Letitia, for joining us. And Hillary is an internationally acclaimed social entrepreneur, author of Radical Help, and a speaker of, that has impacted many in terms of their thinking on the future of work. Hillary's current work focuses on the need for a fifth social revolution, to enable widespread flourishing in this century in work, society, and economics to go through deep structural change. Welcome, Hilary. And before we get started, and before I ask you to reflect on why this conversation is important to both of you, just a bit of housekeeping. If you're watching along live, we'd love to get you involved in the chat. Do share your thoughts and comments in the chat. If you're on Twitter, please use the hashtag RSAGoodWork. The discussion ahead aims to challenge and rethink what good, works, good work means today and in the future. The RSA's Good Work Guild has also aimed to tackle this very question in the past 12 months since its foundation in 2021. Harambe itself is a member of the Good Work Guild and the conversations have prompted us to really think about both jobs of today, jobs of the future and work of our societies today and in the future. So I'm going to turn to you, Hilary, just to reflect briefly on why this conversation matters, why now and what's important for us to discuss.
2: Well, thank you, Shami. I mean, as you mentioned, my work historically has been the subject of radical help has been about the welfare state. And what has increasingly struck me is that we've had a whole set of social and economic structures that are basically predicated on this idea that work pays a salary and provides the conditions for good life. And when you don't have work, then the state or other social systems will step in to support you. But what's really obvious is that this foundation stone is now completely broken, that good work is very hard to find, that millions of people in the US, UK and other nations have two family members in work and still aren't able to afford food or heating and the kind of basics of life. Um, And we also have on the other side, a lot of people who are supposedly in good work, but are finding it really difficult to balance everything else in life, whether it's time to kind of supervise a child's homework or to care or or just to enjoy life. So fundamentally, this sort of um, relationship between work and life, I think is broken. And so in my work, I'm looking at how we can rethink that. I'm very interested in the history of technology revolutions, which is a particular moment when we see that the structure and nature of work fundamentally changes every time. And it's not that technology dictates how that work's going to change, it's just that technology revolutions produces tumult, which we can see now in which new things can happen. But for them to happen, first of all, we have to imagine it. So my work really is about working with workers. I've worked all over the UK. I've had 200 encounters with very different types of workers, asking them what a good working life looks like. I'm now about to go to the US to repeat that work, to think about what is it we want to imagine? What do we actually want to achieve in this 21st century? What would the work look like for everybody?
1: Perfect. Thank you, Hilary. And over to you, Letitia. Why is this conversation meaningful to you?
0: We're seeing an acceleration of what I called a couple of years ago the unbundling of works, of, of jobs, um, more exactly. So, so you know, you, we used to have this bundle. It's exactly as Hillary said that, um, you know, in exchange for some degree of alienation in salary work, um, you know, division of labor, subordination, you had this bundle of benefits. Um, which made jobs um, work, and you had so you had access to housing. Access to housing was part of the bundle. It no longer is for most people. Um, you had uh, a safety net that made, made that um, uh, made it possible for you to have some kind of agency and not feel like you're surrounded by precarity, precariousness. Um, you had a pension that you could count on. You had all those things that you could take for granted. And none of these things we can take for granted anymore. So it's exactly like this fork where we have a dichotomy between some people, perhaps who could be on, considered on top of the uh, market, so who have skills that are in high demand, but to find the bundle unattractive and find that they lack meaning, that there's this disalignment between what they do and what their aspirations are, li- are, are like. And for most uh, people, it's uh, at the bottom of the pyramid needs that they find that the basic things that they could take for granted including, yes, heating, housing, food, um, are no longer um, can no longer be taken for granted. And we've seen all these massive disruptions, supply chain disruptions that all of a sudden make it make it feel like there is nothing we can take for granted. And so this this thing that provided uh, security, that provided a sense of agency, no longer do. And we're in the middle of the storm. I think the dust hasn't settled yet. We haven't finished this period of transition, of unbundling of jobs. And the question is, how do we invent new institutions to recreate this bundle in a new way? And that's a question that I find fascinating and that I tackle with, I would say, a feminist perspective, because I think that women are both more impacted, but they're also also part of the solution for for the reasons explained by Hilary in her book, Radical Help, uh, because care is at the center of um, of those questions about how how we reinvent the institutions that we need.
1: Terrific, Letitia! so much food for thought. And I'm gonna come back to you in just a second. And Hilary, I mean, so much of what you said resonates because it is such a dysfunctional labor market, if you will, and society in, in terms of the industrial era, knowledge that if you go to school, to university, get a job, you're going to stay there, get a pension paid, and you have some security for the rest of your life. That was designed for the industrial era, worked for a few, and didn't even really work for anyone, but we're still clinging on to that outdated um, narrative and sort of paradigm. So maybe two questions for me to kickstart. I mean, I'd love to hear your, your research and your findings from the conversations you've had with workers, but maybe just to take it a big step up, you started off with this huge sort of understanding of what we need to think of reconceptualizing how our economies and societies work. So, I mean, Leticia prompted us by thinking we need to potentially recraft our institutions what does good work look like and what does it mean for our societies and economies of today and what would you say in terms of crafting new institutions for the future and i'll get to sort of your your research in particular with with the workers and what 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 people are saying they would like to imagine good work looks like but maybe start off with that um in terms of your research and your work
2: yeah i mean it's such a big question you're asking i mean it's a really important one i mean one of the reasons <clears throat> that i'm doing this work <clears throat> excuse me is because work has become very fashionable and I think that one of the things that we're seeing is that uh, work is still I mean to Letitia's point work is still a subject that is predominantly written about by white men and certainly worker voices themselves are absolutely missing so one of the things that prompted my work was that I think that the imagining has to start with those people who are doing the experiencing and particularly those people who are doing the experiencing of jobs that have too low pay, unpredictable shifts and and that That's one group that really interests me. Another group that really interests me is a group that will need to transition. Much of the work that we do has to stop if we've really got any chance of reaching net zero. So we need to think in a fundamentally different way about how we transition from one form of work to another. And one of the things you mentioned in your question, Shami, is this idea of the very linear life that we go to school, we work, we retire. In my workshops, people are really upset with this and they want to really rethink it very profoundly. And I'm talking about, you know, grave diggers, bin collectors, university professors, nuclear weapon makers, all kinds of different people. And we don't just want to kind of have second chances and rethink our work. We want to restructure our days and our lives so they're not linear in this way. But to get to your question about institutions, which is a really big one. I run design workshops and they're in two halves. The first is imagining a good working life and the second is around imagining institutions, because one of the things that we see in in technology revolutions is that the form of work organisation has to change to make gains. So, you know, when we had the Industrial Revolution, workers didn't rely on 19th century guilds anymore to think about how they could restructure work. They began to invent the trades unions and it's impossible to think about the gains that we had in the 20th century without the trades unions. We wouldn't have had education, fair pay, safety, housing, the things that Letitia was talking about without trades unions. But I think now we need to think about what kind of forms do we need to have? How must those unions change? They're making really important gains at the moment in in Europe, uh, regaining some 20th century rights that were lost. But I think it's not just about regaining those 20th century rights. It's also about reimagining, as I'm talking about, and Letitia's talking about, you know, work and life, work and care. And for this, we need very different forms of institution. And again, it's really the rich imaginings that have come out of my workshops are very, very interesting in thinking about how we take what are very industrial organizations that we have at the moment. They're very vertical, they're hierarchical, they're very competitive. I mean, one thing we could talk about is that gains are always made in this zero sum idea of like, well, we'll try and gain for workers in the North or white workers over here. We'll pass the burden of our work, usually to the global South. So one of the things that has to happen in this revolution is that we can't carry on like that. We need to think about how the relationships change, excuse me, And how everybody rises to some to, to be able to access what we would think of as good work and that is about rethinking institutions it's not about thinking as the current dynamic is about how we get that worker a good job it's about thinking collectively and institutionally in a very different way
1: so I loved what you said, Hillary, and I'm definitely going to come back to what your research, especially feedback from people who, people who do the work, the grave diggers, the, the contact center workers, etc., who talk about what we could imagine good work to look like. And I love what you said about being less structured, less vertical, less hierarchical, less zero sum, and um, but I'm going to come to you, Letitia, for a second, because I think what we said was really powerful in terms of unbundling and thinking of what that means for organizations of today and organizations of tomorrow. I mean, you refer to it in passing in terms of work being in increasingly precarious. And you know one thinks of the gig work economy, particularly, uh, the great resignation in, in most of the west and the global north is accompanied by the great application in, in some of the global South, particularly in Africa. And you have a, a push towards gig work and in t- increasingly you know precarious work. What would you say in terms of the lessons for specific employers and organizations of today? to think of how to rebundle, recast this set of benefits and, and um, you know categories that we used to think of before that has come completely undone in the past 30 or 40 years.
0: Mm. One of the keys to, for organizations to move forward in the right direction is to understand that there's, as um, Hilary said, this, this shock of... The digital transition and its impact on the economy, the fact that there are that the life expectancy of business models is shorter than it used to be. The life expectancy of professional skills is not what it used to be. It's, it's all shortened uh, and all accelerating and, 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 and changing extremely fast. But at the same time, the life expectancy of people. In spite of what's happened during the pandemic, we, we, it's true we have lost uh, some uh, life expectancy. But over 200 years, we've gained roughly between two and three years of life expectancy every decade. So we are nearly at the end of the demographic transition. And this shock between the demographic transition and the digital revolution creates a completely different landscape in which the bundle just simply cannot work the way it was. What it means for companies and organizations, employers in general, is that there are many, many more Um, middle-aged people, um, elderly people, people in their 50s, people in their 60s who will need to work longer and longer. There are fewer, um, I mean, at the bottom of the age pyramid, it's not even a pyramid anymore. It's still called an age pyramid for some reason, but it looks like a very long bottle with a very long bottleneck. In Japan, the bottleneck is so long because people in their hundreds are numerous enough to be visible on that age pyramid. Um, In most uh, European countries, it's the middle of the bottle. um, That's like a fat bottle in the middle. For people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, that's like the, the big chunk. And at the bottom, it's narrower and narrower, and fertility rates are going down. So this linear vision of, I'm going to recruit someone, uh, who's just out of school, and then um, train them, and then keep them, hopefully, for, a, you know, a long period of time, and then promote them, and, you know, have managers who are slightly older than the people who they manage, etc., with this, you know, very linear vision of people who are more expensive as they grow older. And um, that's just something that's not working anymore. The truth is, it wasn't really working to begin with for women, because, Women had periods of you know, part-time work for a couple of years, sometimes uh, maternity leaves. And so they had more chaotic careers. And the bundle didn't really work for them anyway it's clearly visible in the pension gap and the pension gap is about twice as high as the revenue gap as the work revenue gap it, and and that is a clear sign of the fact that it didn't work to begin with so for employers it means rethinking the way they recruit people um, for example recruiting people in their 40s and 50s for a new career, for a new job, um, or it might mean um, promoting someone younger uh, who has only done one job and who, that's a minority of people now. So they may actually be more senior in a position than someone older than them starting a second career. So there will be more professional transitions and we need to support those professional transition transitions. Understand that it's still worth it to train a 55-year-old. Yes, they will have a long career. They may even stay at your company, at your organization for longer than someone much younger. Someone much younger may actually only stay for a year at the company. So this this takes some, Uh, This takes a lot of rethinking, but when you think of it, it's also a lot of opportunities, because many people are underemployed, have tremendous potential that's not untapped. In France, where I'm from, the the, the rate of employment for people between 55 and 64 is shockingly low, low. It's shockingly low because women in particular face you know this form of ageism that is even worse because there is sexism added to it, and some of them uh, have even degrees uh, that uh, that are you know very much sought after on the job market. But because they are in their fifties, and because they had um, you know several children and periods of. Less work; they are regarded as uh, not ambitious, and that's regarded as a problem. Um, the second point, so that's that's you know linear careers and 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 managing and recruiting people of all ages and kind of uh, disrupting this linear vision. The second thing is that we need to understand that the shock of the demographic transition and the digital revolution creates a completely different context for housing. So the reasons are that with the digital revolution, or after the digital revolution, there's a concentration of activity, economic activity, in large, in large cities. But housing uh, was not d- developed enough or fast enough, and that's uh, created a world where housing costs have risen much faster than the revenues of work. And it's a huge challenge because, Right now most of the large cities of the world are affordable only to knowledge workers are affordable only to engineers and accountants and marketing people and doctors and surgeons not to care workers proxim- workers in proximity services so nurses and cleaning women and uh, domestic workers etc who find it extre- increasingly hard to get to where the work is so there's a mismatch and that mismatch is one of the big reasons for the shortages of workers that we're seeing it, they cannot just you know move to paris move to london to get where the, to go where the jobs are because it's impossible to find housing in those um, in those places so there's a role for employers there too for them to understand that perhaps in that bundle Uh, they need to add housing one way or the other, or reorganize work so as to make it possible for the workers to not live in the city. Um, There are many innovative ways to think about that mismatch and address the situation, but most employers do not think about housing and how that element of the bundle is really the most critical element.
1: Well, thanks, Letitia. I think that's so much food for thought. I love the juxtaposition of the digital transformation to the demographic um, transition as well. And sort of the disruption leads to so many different things that ought to be reconceptualized. And I'm keen to understand in your work, and I'll get to you in a second, what employers are doing, and specifically organizations are grappling with, because these are such massive transitions that we're both seeing at a societal level and at a microcosmic level with individual organizations and employers. What you're seeing in your work as being challenging and what you're seeing the opportunities to be um, is a key key question I have. But maybe coming back to you, Hilary, on the question of what people are saying they want to reimagine this work to be to begin with. I mean, Letitia mentioned having to care, to juggle different things. We're looking at an aging population. You're looking at sandwich generation employees. What does good work look like to to the workers of today from your research?
2: Yes, I'll come to that. But one thing I would say is I also really like the way that Letitia has sort of talked about, you know, demography on the one hand and technology on the other. I think there is a third, and it is about ecological transition. It is about climate. And I think it's really interesting that it is it is usually missing. And actually, it's also missing in the conversations that I have with workers. People aren't thinking about this. But when we come to talk about care, hopefully we can talk a bit more about care because it's so profound to this, as Letitia is saying, is that one of the reasons that we will have to revalue the work of care and repair is because this is the work of this century. This is what's needed. This is the work that we need as humans that are, are surroundings our environments need and it's the work that we have to do because it's climate neutral work whereas many other things are kind of really you know work we're sort of working towards our own destruction and we, we are going to have to tackle this and I think that this again leads back to the institutional question about how are we collectively going to tackle this with some urgency um but but to your question what are workers saying well um The biggest, one of the things I think is very interesting is I've worked with very different categories of workers. So I've worked with skill manufacturing, I've worked with gig workers, I've worked with low-paid carers and so on. And I think there are about five themes that come out that are absolutely universal to to the work. And I wasn't expecting there to be so much commonality. A really critical one is what people call the juggle juggle. It is about work and care. And this um, this is not gender dependent. Men and women want to care. Um, It is to some extent age dependent, younger workers are not thinking usually, not always, but usually quite so much about this. And this is also not about reorganizing services to care. This is about reorganizing our lives so we can do the work of production and reproduction. And that this kind of boundary that's been put between the two, um, which is of course completely false, we can rethink it. And for me, I, when I think about this now, I think about how in the last revolution we had the weekend, obviously not everybody has still got a weekend, but there was this idea, you know, when you flooded into the cities in the industrial revolution, if people had said you can have time paid off at the weekends, everybody would have said, but you're completely, never happen and it happened and now I think we need to think in this revolution how are we going to actually rethink in a really fundamental way what are those boundaries between work and care so that's about unpaid care it's about paid care services and about paid carers. And this is absolutely fundamental. Another thing is about rethinking um, linear lives. People don't want this, you know, school, job, retire, particularly if you're a manual worker, you don't want it because you're broken by the time that you, you retire. But it's also feeds into a, the third theme, which is around second chances, which Letitia has talked about. So people are going to have to transition between different forms of work partly because that's the nature of the labor market partly because so many of us make mistakes when we're young we're kind of pushed into something that doesn't really suit us and partly because actually even though this isn't visible yet in another decade it will be very visible we're going to have to get out of stuff that is kind of carbon intensive so we need to think in a really different way how we access income for that to happen you know could we have transition incomes for example I'm very interested in that idea do we think really differently about how we access education and how that education changes that's another really big theme but the other thing I think that I mean just to sort of summarize the other thing that's really important in the work is is almost this idea that work is in the wrong category that we've thought about work as an economic category but really it's a cultural category and so it's really important that we have predictable shifts that we have respect that we have a decent wage but these are like a kind of flaw I mean in in my work these aren't discussed as They're not things that most of the people in the workshops have, but they're not seen as things that should be a big dream. They're seen as things that are fundamental rights. And then from there, how do we begin to kind of rethink work so that we have time to play, time to care, time to learn, and to really sort of push work into a different kind of category in our lives. So it has importance, but it's not the thing. And we see people doing this, don't we? We see the kind of younger generation, whether it's the lying down movement or the so-called quiet which is that people are agitating to do this. They're kind of, you know, or whether it is people who have kind of resigned because they're able to resign, but in different ways, we see this, this beginning to happen. And it is a kind of agitation for a, for a fundamental rethinking about the role of work in our lives rather than just what jobs look like.
1: Thanks, Hilary. I mean, those are fantastic themes, you know, thinking of the boundaries of work and care and the juggle, juggle, not being linear, having second chances. And I love this concept of reconceptualizing work as culture, not just as a thing that's an economic activity. And I really appreciate the provocation also to consider both the demographic, the digital and the ecological, almost different time horizons, if you will, at the same time, forcing us to think like you are, both of you. Um, on multiple t- time horizons to begin with. And I loved what you said, Letitia, about sort of our skilling being outdated and our learning having to really catch up, uh, you know, in the short term, keeping the long-term trends in mind. So maybe if I can come back to you. Can, so can I just to say
2: one thing, so just to interrupt, but just to say, can
1: I just say one thing that's really interesting is
2: that a lot in a lot of my work I've been working with workers who already have green jobs they're working in green and they are not interested in this they are interested in they've taken those jobs if they give them time to care not because they're green just to say about how those three things you know so that's much more sort of in the demography if you like than even though they are in jobs which look like good well-paid green jobs I just wanted to say that because you know there's one thing of what it looks like from the policy perspective but then there's another thing about what we as humans are choosing.
1: Precisely, and what motivates us to do meaningful work. And I think that's that's a really important provocation. Um, and maybe, Leticia, in your work with organizations, I'm really curious, because these are huge shifts that we're talking about happening, sometimes compressed, sometimes forced, for example, by the pandemic and post-economic recovery and transition, and the climate uh, crisis, which is not forcing us to act urgently enough. So you're grappling with these immense shifts with multiple time horizons with disruption. How are organizations coping? What are they they saying in response to some of these changes? And what are the sort of bright spots, if you will, in terms of things that are happening that are useful to to call out?
0: A lot of them are reacting or or reacting in, in a very short term way, thinking we need to improve our image. So there is a lot of greenwashing, there is a lot of responsibility washing, corporate responsibility washing, as if uh, that would make them attractive as employers, when the long-term, more structural way of thinking should be to understand that the demographic and the ecological things are connected, and that's the only way to make your... Um, to make you more attractive as an employer. Uh, But perhaps just to react on what Hilary said, that when she, I love that you added the ecological um, theme into the, the, the mix of the two things that I mentioned, because in fact, tackling demographic transitions within your corporation will also at the same time help you address ecological challenges. Uh, For many reasons, care is one, because as you add more care jobs or as you make care more, uh, as you facilitate care, you make uh, the economy less carbon intensive. Care work is less carbon intensive than industrial work and than most other work. Uh, if you make care more, easier at home, there will be, you know, fewer commutes as we've witnessed, and that's also uh, less carbon intensive. And you could add in more examples into the mix. Also, as you make work easier, to you know, to combine care and work, uh, as you if, as you organize work more flexibly as you make it easier to have shorter work weeks. For example, the four-day work week is a trend that we're witnessing. Uh, Some employers have uh, used this as a way to address the question more profoundly than just a question of image. Um, Or just um, make it possible for for higher skilled jobs to um, to have ambition or to have ambitious jobs part-time. That's extremely taboo because when it comes to ambition, it's always, I mean, the assumption is that you will sacrifice your entire life to your job. And every, um, you know, every job that's associated with the idea of ambition, we could question that obviously, but every powerful job is a greedy job is a job that demands 60, 70, 80 hours of your week. And that's a natural assumption, so that those greedy jobs are absolutely incompatible with care, incompatible with normal lives. And the fact that they are greedy makes it particularly discriminating um, for women, uh, because, um, because yes, care is not just women, but it's, majoritarily women and in particular parenthood uh, and that makes it uh basically it's it's a cell it's a self-selection so they apply less to those jobs they will uh prefer different careers because those greedy jobs are just not compatible with a normal life that requires hours for care hours for self-care also not just caring for others also caring for yourself and that's um that's one challenge. Um, and I know it concerns mostly uh, well-paid jobs, uh, but it will have effects on, on on the redistribution basically of those powerful well-paid jobs. That if you if you make it compatible with care, then you'll have a lot new, a lot of a lot more candidates. You'll have women in the lot, you'll have a more diverse crowd that uh, has access to those more powerful positions Uh, and when i say power it's it's not just you know politics and and finance right it's it's a lot of uh, a lot of the jobs that are the most valued in on the market and if we could make them if we could redistribute them a little bit we'll have um we'll have a society that's much more balanced overall
1: but if i can maybe ask you a a sort of a little bit of a further question because to me i i completely get what you're saying and you're sort of preaching to the choir on this team but when you're talking to an organization that's trying to maximize shareholder capital and look at profits and bottom line etc and squeezing and you know making gains for investors that are greedy and you know demanding how do you even start this conversation because i think for me this is obvious and i think it makes complete sense and it is an opportunity for us in this moment post-pandemic we're looking at climate crisis, we're looking at everything that we've done that's fairly destructive over the past several decades. How are you having conversations with organizations and what is your sort of wedge to be able to take this conversation further with, with organizations that different have different priorities?
0: Well, you start with the problems that they have and that concern shareholders too. The problems that they have are this bottleneck of recruiting. They find that the pool of candidates that they can draw from is getting narrower, narrower, and they find that it's increasingly hard also to keep the talent that they managed with difficulty to recruit. So they have high rates of burnout and they have, when they measure The way they measure productivity shows that productivity is either stagnating or declining. Um, So they have problems and they are not maximizing shareholder value, if you will. So uh, you start with that and actually making the pool larger, the pool of candidates, the pool of employees and salaried workers who they can promote a bit larger uh, will make it uh, better, will increase their level of productivity, will make it easier for them to recruit the talent that they need, will prevent future shortages, will prevent future supply chain disruptions. And they do understand that argument. But often work is culture, as you said, Hilary. And the problem is that it's extremely, it's it's a legacy it's very hard to question the legacy of, you know, work as this all-consuming activity that uh, is incompatible with everything else, and that was created on the, uh, you know, this archetype of the worker who's this white male man, uh, with heterosexual man, with a wife who, um, you know, looks after the children, does most of the of the care work either for free or not, but uh, basically it's this, this this duo of this unpaid worker who sustains the paid worker. And that's been broken because a lot of the unpaid work has entered the market as low paid work, uh, but the jobs, the greedy jobs, the greedy productive jobs have not changed. And so this this, this edifice of unpaid work supporting paid work, is um, no longer sustainable because we have fewer such nuclear families. Uh, they're not the majority of the household anymore. There are many more people who are single. There are, I mean, the, the landscape is completely different. So the edifice doesn't work anymore. And at some point, uh, I believe employers will just have to redefine the productive work on top of the hierarchy because uh, otherwise it's just unsustainable.
1: Thanks, Leticia. I think you've basically outlined, you know, the pandemic also has exposed this invisible infrastructure, right, that has been holding this false edifice up and the cracks in the edifice, plus the fact that it's exposed this invisible infrastructure has made it a moment of reckoning. Um, maybe um, to you, Hillary, to probably conclude with a few comments, I'm going to come back to both of you. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. But I don't know if you have any responses to Leticia in what she said, but also how you're having this conversation with institutions to really rethink and reimagine work of the future.
2: Yes. So I think one thing is that, um, I mean, it's exactly as Letitia is saying, I mean, employers need talent and talent, especially, you know, is, is saying that we want to work in certain ways. But one thing I find very interesting is that we have had quite a lot of historical experiments as well, where working time has been radically changed. I can think of, for instance, Kellogg's in the 1930s, where they offered completely different shifts. Their productivity was off the scale. Every other business, new industrial business in the US, went to have a look at the Kellogg's factory to see how they were doing it. So I think what what interests me partly is how these experiments get forgotten. In fact, we've got a lot of evidence that giving workers greater flexibility, working less, adds to the bottom line. You become more productive, you have less accidents, you have greater loyalty of your employees and so on. So it's interesting that we actually know that, and yet somehow it hasn't quite yet broken through into common sense. But again, we can talk about lots of things that have happened historically that we look at now and we think, how did that happen? And eventually it breaks into the common sense. And in the UK at the moment, we have 70 employers experimenting, um, joining a kind of national experiment in, in the four day working week. I've got all sorts of interests and critiques of that, but they are they are uh, companies of all different sizes and they're joining this because they're interested in productivity, in recruiting workers in the way that Letitia's talking about. So it, it's not, they're not joining it because they're, they're thinking, I mean, they're exactly responding to their shareholders. They're not joining thinking, oh, this is a kind of interesting thing to do. They're kind of searching for kind of better ways of working and, and, and thinking this, this forward. But you asked me a bigger question, Shami, and now I was th- listening to Letitia and I've forgotten what you actually asked me. I'm sorry.
1: No, know how are you having conversations with institutions oh yes well that structure? yes
2: well I think that's really important because again if I can go back to my starting point about technology revolutions is that when you look at revolutions and when work shifts you see that kind of historically four people have had to, or four groups so you have to have organized labor, you have to have unions in some form, you have to have intellectuals who have ideas, I call them organic because they're not necessarily in the universities, you know, they're critical people like Letitia thinking about work and kind of with all the big ideas. Um, You have also, um, you know, civil society, but you have employers. And whenever we look at big Changes in work, what we see is that there's always people at the forefront of the revolution that are thinking that this is actually a moment when capitalism has changed. And if we carry on kind of beating the drum and trying to, you know, like after the pandemic, get everybody back to work, try and go back to normal, it doesn't work. We have to see and we have to understand those deep ruptures of technology, demography, and now climate. Um, And and we have to see that we have to reshape our businesses. And usually that has been led. So, I mean, Henry Ford is a classic example. He wasn't a very nice man. He didn't do this philanthropically. He realised that if he didn't pay his workers differently and give them different conditions, they couldn't buy his cars and he didn't have a market. So he completely changed how he employed his workers. And I think we can see that happening now. We can see, you know, I haven't looked deeply into it, but we see things like Patagonia. We see, you know, um, business leaders who are thinking... What is my role to society? What is my role to a new social contract, you know, in a very deep way and beginning to kind of experiment. I can talk about other people here in the UK. We can think about other other business leaders in Europe who are beginning to kind of challenge that logic. At the moment, they look like outsiders on the curve, but we can be sure that some of these experiments will, will succeed, some won't, but that, you know, there is going to be a kind of movement of the common sense, if you like.
1: Thanks, Hilary. I think that's terrific. And um, it's great because it's a fantastic segue to my concluding question of both of you, which we we can continue this conversation for ages. And and you both are a wealth of information and and knowledge in this space. However, I I do want to end with, you know, on an upbeat note in terms of innovations or something that is happening that gives you hope, because I do think there's a lot of both challenge and opportunity at the same time that this this time presents us. And so maybe Letitia to you, what are the sort of bright sparks, innovations, um, stories of hope that can give us kind of courage, that you know, encouragement that this is actually taking root, this different way of thinking of work is actually taking place right now.
0: What I'm seeing is a lot of people, not necessarily employers, but people in their 50s and 60s advocating for the end of this linear vision of work, um, getting more visible. Um, as a f- feminist, the one thing that gives me hope is that I'm hearing a lot of, progress- of new progressive movements and in the context of a terrible backlash in some of the Western world, uh, it-, it gives me hope to think that you know, still a lot of things are still going forward and in, in, in France, for example, a lot of uh, um, a lot of lobbies and organizations are embracing uh, the parental challenge for employers to make care work more um, possible. And, and one innovation that I would like to um, that I would like to support is the idea of putting the single mom, and the 60-year-old woman at the heart of your thinking as an employer. If you, what, How would you design things differently at work in your company if you designed everything with the single mom as a default pers- persona? Not the white cis white man, man as a default persona, but the single mom. Uh, and perhaps the single mom from a minority who uh, has um, different challenges in life than the single white mom. How would you design things differently? Uh, that's one way of thinking in terms of designing work um, that would lead to many innovations. Likewise, with as training as far as training is concerned, how would you design your training? How would you design your career programs for a sixty-year-old? And again woman as the default persona because that would only make things better for men for men too um how would you design your training programs uh if your default persona was a 60 year old woman Um, how would you make the material how would you make um, the um, how would you make it attractive, um, all those things. And that's, um, that's a shift that uh, could um, lead to many nice innovations. And I'm seeing some, you know, some buds, <laughs> some emerging trends that lead me to be optimistic that this, this that some uh, companies are and, and employers are embracing those questions.
1: Thank you, Letitia. I think also, I loved what you said about this leads to other innovations, because I think the minute you think of inclusion as charitable, then you lose the actual grander purpose, which is that inclusion enriches us. And I think we can take a lot of cues from the disability rights movement, to be very honest, because I do think that you know, judging from like design of sidewalks, which benefited not just people with wheelchairs, but lots of others, et cetera. I think for me, that's a really vital point for us to continue to stress. Hilary, I'm gonna give you the last word to actually talk about sort of your bright spots and, and what gives you hope at this time in terms of redesigning work.
2: Well, I have to say I feel very hopeful because travelling the country and now about to travel the US, you see so much innovation and, I mean, so many rich ideas. And so I'd like to say that I see I see hope in three areas. So one is, um, actually, I run a series of interviews with business leaders that I call the new industrialists. So I'm constantly searching for those people in big businesses and small businesses that are thinking very differently about their role in a bigger social contract and how they think about work. And They are at the margins, but some of them run very important companies and there is this thinking emerging. I think it's really important. Secondly, I think we do see new forms of organisation and the ones that excite me. um, You know, I think we're seeing a new interest in mutualism, in cooperatives, in owner workforce. I think of things like Bortsorg, for example, which the RSA have talked about a lot, which is a very different way of thinking about care, which is very sustainable for the workers who are well-paid as well as those who are cared for. Joste Block, who founded it, he talks about a psychological contract. It's a really different way about thinking about the role of the the self-managed worker uh, with autonomy. Um, Riverford, for example, which is an agricultural company, a farming company in the UK that has just given a very successful uh, sort of farm to doorstep business to all its workers to rethink ownership for the next generation which i think is incredibly exciting um and then i think that we do see really interesting new models of worker organization a lot of those actually are coming from the african continent there's also a kind of explosion in the u.s in new forms of you know people like michelle miller at co-worker who are thinking about different ways of using um using the technology revolution to rethink how we organize. Um, Letitia introduced me to the work of Hindela Drissi in France, who's thinking very differently about how she can organize freelancers. So we see as well, a rethinking of, of those institutions, which is sort of what, where we started at the beginning of this conversation. And these are not small experiments. These are things that many thousands of people are joining. And I think that's really exciting.
1: Well, thank you, Hilary. And I have to say, it's been such a pleasure and honor to host you both. It's such a wealth of information. Thank you for sharing your time, your insights. It's been such a privilege uh, listening to you. But I'm afraid that's all that we have time for today. So Leticia and Hilary, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in to watch. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the RSA's Good Work Guild, please follow the links in the live chat. And thank you to the RSA for hosting this event. I think this is incredibly important and a topic of future conversations, I'm sure. To learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved, please visit the RSA.org. Thank you all for watching and have a great rest of your day. See you next time.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.